Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening for the freedom that we enjoy, that you've blessed us with, for the resources, for this opportunity to be able to gather online and to study. And Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to continue our study in the subject of soteriology, that this will be a time that we will be sensitive to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the biblical text And Father, we just pray that we will be challenged by the things that we study, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are picking up in our continued study on the role of God the Holy Spirit in soteriology. We've been looking at uh, the the work of the Trinity in soteriology for the last uh, really few months. We talked about the Trinity, all three members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit being co-equal co-infinite and co-eternal, worthy of all honor, worship, praise, and obedience. We talked about the attributes of God. Uh, We worked through those uh, one by one. And then we moved into God the Father and his role in soteriology. And we looked at um, how he, from eternity past, uh, planned our salvation. This was something that took place sometime in eternity past. And he commissioned the Son and he sent the Son into the world And we looked at the passages related to that. Then we moved into God the Son and his role in soteriology. And we are not done, by the way, with the role of God the Son. I'm going to circle back. And uh, here in a few weeks, we're going to spend some time. We'll probably spend a whole evening talking about the cross and crucifixion. Uh, We'll talk about the death of Christ, what exactly that accomplished. And so that should be very, very uh, interesting studies. So just to kind of give you a preview of where we're going. But up to this point, we have looked at God the Son. We looked at those passages that point out his deity. We looked at the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which teaches that he is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is the theanthropic person, the God-man. We looked at the sinlessness of Christ, the humility of Christ, the suffering servant. Uh, We talked about the atonement. We looked at uh, the role of God the Son as it relates to the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And so we've hit on those things, and we still have subjects to address uh, that we're going to be dealing with again here in the weeks ahead. Uh, Last time we met, uh, we talked about the role of God the Holy Spirit. We uh, took some time to look at two things. We talked about the passages that point out his deity and also his personhood. And we carefully worked through that. And then we looked at the role of God, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, how he came upon saints. But apart from the Ezekiel passage, you really don't have anything that says that he indwelled saints. Um, And the Spirit could come upon a person and could leave a person, and that did not affect their salvation. But there was something that was an innovation in the church age in which we live, and that is that there was something new that the Spirit was doing on the day of Pentecost that began on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus made it very clear that when he, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will not only guide us into all truth and he will speak what he hears, but Jesus made it very clear that he will not only will be with you, but will be in you. And that prepositional phrase was very important to understand uh, because it helps us to understand that something new was happening. And so we have a relationship to, to God, the Holy Spirit, that is unique for our time. Uh, Old Testament saints did not enjoy what we enjoy. 
And, uh, and then we spent some time talking about the sustaining ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus and how he sustained him really from conception. Because remember in Luke 1, uh, the angel Gabriel, when talking to the Virgin Mary, made it very clear that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And by means of the uh, supernatural conception of Jesus, the humanity of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, that she would give birth to a son, and he would be a he would be the the descendant of David, and he would sit upon the throne of his father David and rule over the uh, twelve tribes of Israel. And so the Holy Spirit then worked through the life of Christ, and he empowered him and he strengthened him, and right up to the time of the crucifixion, uh, we know from the Hebrews passage that that the that the Spirit sustained him even while he was on the cross. So we see the work of Christ as it related to the sustaining ministry uh, with regard to Christ, the Spirit's work to sustain Christ. And now we've moved into this section where we're looking at the Spirit's convicting ministry to the world. And I'm going to back up and just kind of read through my notes here. By the way, I mentioned it last time, but in John 14, 26, uh, Jesus, talking about the Spirit and part of the ministry of the Spirit, He says in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And we talked about how, how, remember there are those clear passages where Jesus makes it clear that he was sent by the Father, that the Father sent him. And again, that speaks to the plan of salvation in eternity past, that God the Father sent the Son, and the Son came into the world as an act of obedience to the Father. And it's interesting to me that even though the members of the Godhead are co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal, you have from Scripture uh, this idea that there is an authority structure within the Godhead. And this in no way threatens or diminishes uh, one of the other members of the Godhead. They're all equally God, and yet the Father sent the Son. And yet here, from this passage, we, we see that the Father is going to send the Spirit, and uh, Jesus also is going to send the Spirit. So you have both the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. Now, this was a big controversy uh, regarding the Nicene Creed. If you ever study church history, you'll know that there was the filioque clause uh, and the Son, and it caused this big disruption between the church in the East and the West. And if you ever study church history, you can see that. But biblically speaking, uh, apart from that big controversy, biblically speaking, we know that the Father sent the Spirit and Christ sent the Spirit. So both are true. So going off the notes here, and we'll be chasing down some Scripture, I'm just going to kind of cruise through this, and then we'll get to the next section where we're going to look at the convicting ministry of the Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, God the Holy Spirit took on a new ministry after Jesus returned to heaven. And part of his ministry is to believers and part is to unbelievers. Now, I wrote a book some years ago, probably about 10 years ago, called The Christian Life, A Study of Biblical Spirituality. And I have since revised my notes. I've expanded them, actually. And even in this study, we're going to, at some point, delve a little bit into the subject of biblical spirituality, because that has been a, a field of interest for me, because I very much want to walk with God. I want to know what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. And I want this Christian life. Now, some Bible teachers focus on prophecy, some focus on Old Testament history, some focus on the Gospels. Uh, My area of interest and study over the years has been the spiritual life. How do we live that out? What is it? What does it look like? And so that has always been a fascination to me and something that I believe God has placed upon my heart. 
and I appreciate those other Bible teachers. I'm certainly a big fan of uh, people like Dr. Robert Dean and Dr. Andy Woods. And, you know, Woods is known for his, uh, his uh, uh, lessons on prophecy, and I love that. And I certainly learn a lot from him. Uh, but my area of study generally tends toward that of the spiritual life. So going on in the notes here, again, part of this Holy Spirit's ministry is to believers, and part of it is to unbelievers. Concerning the Spirit's ministry to believers, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And here he's talking to the disciples in the upper room. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so this speaks, this, this was a prophecy at the time that Jesus gave this. Now we look at uh, this as being a fulfilled prophecy because the Spirit did come. Now the Helper is the Holy Spirit. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. And here it translates the Greek noun parakletos, parakletos, which is a term that is also used of Christ uh, when he's called a comforter. And so here it's called the Helper. So the Helper is the Holy Spirit whom Jesus will send, and notice that it's future tense from the Greek verb pimpo, will send to believers. Now the Spirit's work in Christians would be multifaceted and would, would relate to really our sanctification and godly influence in a fallen world because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6 makes this very, very clear. Uh, and so God the Holy Spirit is going to be working through us to be a light in a dark world. Now, after Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit would work in and through his church to other Christians to help with their sanctification. And that's phase two of the Christian life. Remember, the, the Christian life can be broken into really three phases. Phase one is our justification. Uh, that occurs at the moment of faith in Christ because justification is a one-and-done deal. You are justified instantaneously as an act at the moment of faith in Christ. Then we enter into phase two of the Christian life, which is our sanctification. That is our spiritual growth and where we become less and less like the world around us, where we spend a great deal of time expunging that worldly human viewpoint that infected our brains and led to all sorts of aberrant thinking and, and speech and behavior. And we are expunging that by means of Bible study, and we are replacing it with divine viewpoint. And so we are removing that, and then we are not only learning it, but we're living it. Uh, because it's not enough that we learn the word, we must put it into practice. That's the Christian life. It's always a two-step process. You learn it, and then you live it. And this is called the walk of faith. And this is why uh, James 1.22, James says, Be ye doers of the word, and not merely hearers only, because it is possible to just learn it. And, uh, and that's where it starts. And, uh, but once you learn it, you've got to put it into practice. You've got to apply it. And this is the walk of faith, not feelings. It's just like loving your enemies. I had a discussion the other day with somebody about love, and uh, we were talking about it. And uh, she's pretty savvy. I'll give it to her. She's an older woman, but she really understood some things. And she understood love in the higher sense of being loyalty, commitment. And, um, and uh, she hadn't heard... Uh, you know, she hadn't heard it the way that I presented it with the nuance of seeking God's best in the life of another person. But I said, you know, when it comes to love, it really is a walk of faith in which you are seeking God's best in the life of another person. And in many ways, it's actually contrary to feelings. How you feel really isn't the point. Uh, because when somebody has hurt me, when somebody is my enemy and they're out to get me and they lie and they resort to all sorts of tactics, 
that results in my harm, well, gee, it's hard for me to conjure up a warm, fuzzy feeling for them. And so, and yet I am under the directive by the Lord Jesus himself to love my enemies and to pray for them and, and to bless them and not to curse them. And yet you follow the world and the world is you hate, uh, you curse, you seek their harm and not their best. And so by faith, I learn to apply the word of God. And when I do, it results in emotional stabilization uh, in my soul. And, uh, and so I can manage uh, what's going on and how I handle circumstances. I can't always control what happens to me, but I can control how I handle it. And by walking, by living out divine viewpoint, by walking by faith, I can, uh, I can be better rather than bitter. And I can see it as an opportunity to grow, as an opportunity to shine, as an opportunity to glorify my Lord and edify others. And so we are called to this thing called the Christian life, but it starts with what we learn. And so this issue of sanctification is very much a role of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And he will recall those scriptures to your mind. He will help you to remember those things so that you might be able to apply it. Now, he can recall it to your mind, but you have to display positive volition by being obedient to the word. And this is called the walk of faith. This is part of the discipline of the Christian life. And it is a discipline uh, where we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and we align our will with his will. And this is an ongoing thing. Sanctification, we never hit that place of, of absolute perfect sinlessness in this life, or if we do, it's brief, and then we fall back into sin, which is where 1 John 1, 9 comes in and humility, and those sorts of things. But that's sanctification. And then, of course, there's glorification, which is the final phase of the Christian life. And uh, that's when we leave this world, by death or by rapture, we, we go to heaven. And when we get our new bodies, if it's the rapture, our bodies will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. If it's, uh, if it's at the time, if we die before the rapture, then our bodies will come out of the grave. It will be reunited with the soul. And uh, at that moment, we will be free from sin's uh, effects upon us. There will no longer be a sin nature. We will have immortal bodies. And uh, the perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortality, this mortal must put on immortality. And so God destines us to live immortal lives in this body. And so this is all going to be renewed. I'm looking forward to that day. But that's glorification. And so remember the three phases of our, of our salvation are that we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's our justification. We are saved from the power of sin. That's our sanctification. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. That's our glorification. So the Christian, the, the Spirit is working now in the church, in believers, uh, to have that sanctifying influence upon our lives so that we will be a godly influence in a fallen world. Now, going on in the notes, after Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit would work in and through his church to other Christians to help with their sanctification, and he will work to unbelievers to share the gospel of grace, uh, that the church will also share uh, with unbelievers the gospel of grace that they might be saved. Warren Wiersbe has this wonderful quote. He says, the Holy Spirit does not minister in a vacuum. Just as the Son of God had to have a body in order to do his work on earth, so the Spirit of God needs a body to accomplish his ministries, and that body is the church. Our bodies are his tools and temples, and he wants to use us to glorify Christ and to witness to a lost world, end quote. And that's correct. Now, this is very encouraging for me, because, as, because Christians know that God the Holy Spirit is working through them or through us, 
to help lead the lost to Christ. Now, I've had the privilege over the years of spending 17 years in jail and prison ministry and sharing the gospel with inmates. Um, On average, I would give the gospel to 25 to 50 inmates per week. Uh, when I was at the Lubbock County Jail, and that was pretty, that was every week I would share the gospel, and you multiply that out times 12 years and four months, and it, a lot of people heard the gospel. Now, I knew people who had believed while I was presenting it, and that was nice. I had people come back later and said, well, I heard it and believed later. That's nice, too. But there are many, the, I would say 95%, I have no idea. I have no idea, but you know what? I'm not really concerned about that. I'm concerned with putting the truth out there because it's about planting seeds. It's about planting seeds of God's word, either the gospel into the mind and the heart of an unbeliever or sharing God's word into the mind of a believer. Because when that happens, God in his time will bring that to, uh, bring that to fruition, that God will, will use that truth that is presented. And, uh, and that's in his time and his way. But it also depends on positive volition, whether or not somebody responds to that. But I'm just a teacher. I'm responsible for output, not outcomes. And so I just put it out there. I just live the Christian life, how God chooses to use that. That's, that's between him and whoever. But it is encouraging to know that God the Holy Spirit is working through us to help lead the lost to Christ. But there is also a special work that the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of unbelievers to help prepare them to turn to Christ as Savior. Concerning this special work, Jesus said in John 16, 8, and he, talking about God the Holy Spirit, When he comes, that's Acts chapter 2, that begins that special ministry that started in Acts chapter 2 in the church age. And he, when he comes, here's what he's going to do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now that's what we're moving into, so we're about to start unpacking this, so hold on. Uh, Now Jesus' statement about the Spirit here is in the future tense. He will do this thing which implies that the Spirit's special ministry was not active at the time that Jesus uttered his statement. Now, this special convicting ministry would be inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, again, Acts 2. And the word convict translates the Greek word alenko, alenko, uh, which means, according to Badag, the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, uh, which means... Uh, quote, to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing, convict or convince someone of something, end quote. And I actually prefer the word convince. I, I prefer that, that word in translation. Now, Jesus said the Spirit's convincing work would fall into three areas. One, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You see, when Jesus says that he will convict the world concerning sin, the word sin there translates the Greek noun hamartia, the Greek noun hamartia. And it is singular. It is singular. He's not talking about all kinds of sins. Now listen, unbelievers are guilty of all kinds of sins. I know some believers that are guilty of all kinds of sins. Uh, But the Spirit is, he's focusing on one, on one sin. He's he's focusing in on, because there's only one sin that keeps you out of heaven, and that is the sin of unbelief. And so a person can clean up their life and they can, they can uh, give up a lot of bad habits and become very moral and yet still go to the lake of fire. Because apart from turning to faith in Christ and Christ alone, because man needs only Christ to be saved, uh, apart from that, there's simply no other way to be saved. And good works, as wonderful as they are, do not save a person. 
Years ago, when I was living in southwest Fort Worth, kind of in a rough neighborhood, it was in decline, I had to move out because we had graffiti showing up on the neighborhood fences, and uh, we had several drive-by shootings, and I had a run-in with several kids in the neighborhood who, were, uh, who had shot out my window, and I confronted them. And uh, anyway, we had, uh, it wasn't a very pleasant situation, but uh, anyway, so it, it started getting pretty bad. But I had a neighbor to the, to, the, to the left of me, if I'm facing my house, and they were Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, he tried to evangelize me, and I, of course, I didn't go for it, and I, and I shared the gospel with him, and of course, he, didn't, he had negative volition. He didn't want to hear it. But he was a very moral man, him and his wife, very moral kept their house clean, their yard clean, their, their, their themselves clean, and they were very honest, and I could, I could trust them. And I would rather have a moral unbeliever uh, than some believers I know who are anything but moral. Now, they're saved. They've trusted in Christ, but they have not advanced to maturity. They have not begun the life of sanctification. And I know if they continue in their sin, they'll, they'll be subject to divine discipline, because he whom the Lord loves... He disciplines like a father his own son. We've talked about that before. But uh, an unbeliever can be very moral. They can clean up their life in a lot of ways, and yet in the end uh, still not go to heaven because it's not about good works. And, uh, and as I've said before, good works do not save. They never have and never will. We've spent endless hours talking about that, so I'm not going to revisit all that. Except to point out here that in our study, there is one sin that the Spirit is focusing on convincing unbelievers about, and it's specifically one sin, and he tells us in verse 9 what it is, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You see, that's the only issue, is faith in Christ, and what is the unbeliever doing with Christ? And so this is part of the convicting work of the Spirit, or the convincing work of the Spirit. Number two, uh, Jesus said, concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And number three, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Spirit has this threefold ministry that he is doing in the world. Now let's, let's dive into this. So let's talk about the first one, the sin of unbelief. Now the sin mentioned by Jesus in John 68, again, does not refer to a catalog of sins that one might be guilty of, such as lust and murder and worry and gossip and stealing, or whatever else you want to throw in there but rather one specific sin, which is unbelief. And again, Jesus made it very clear concerning sin. And again, sin there is singular. He's not talking about many sins. It's singular. He's talking about one sin concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And the word for sin, as I mentioned before, is hamartia. Hamartia. If you ever study, when you're studying systematic theology, uh, you'll study a number of ologies. Uh, if, you, if you just look at the, at the introduction and the, and the table of contents, you'll see uh, bibliology, you'll see theology proper, uh, you'll see biblical anthropology, Satanology, amen, uh, angelology, demonology. Uh, if it's a good one, you'll see Israelology. Uh, then you'll get into Christology and pneumatology. But one of the ologies that you will study is hamartiology, hamartiology, and that is the study of sin, because that is a big, big, big subject in the Bible. And, um, and so that's where this word comes from. It's, it, it derives from this Greek word hamartia, which in Jesus' statement, again, is a singular noun that, re that refers to a specific crime. And by the way, sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll, I'll substitute the word crime for sin, because that is in many ways a suitable synonym. 
Because when we talk about sin, what we're talking about is a deviation from a standard of law. And the law has to do with that which is set forth in the Word of God. It is first a deviation from the character of God, because God is righteous and holy. But it also has to do with a deviation of a standard of righteousness. And, uh, and in today's society, if you, if you break a law, it's called crime. Now, it can be a small infraction like speeding. It can be a big infraction like, uh, like burglary or something. But uh, I'll sometimes use the word crime because I think it kind of brings it into our everyday language, helps us to understand it a little better. Now, Moises Silva, and here I have a quote that is from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis, a uh, very good book. Um, anyway, from Moises Silva, and here he says, Here sin is unbelief. Jesus faces people with a decision for or against himself. By belief or unbelief, a person decides either for life or for death, end quote. And I thought that was a really succinct way to put it. I thought it was a good statement there. Now, there is only one sin that keeps a person out of heaven, and that's the sin of unbelief. Citing here from Warren Wearsby, and this from his Bible Exposition Commentary, Volume 1, page 362. He says, quote, The Holy Spirit convicts the world of one particular sin, the sin of unbelief. The law of God, and notice he brings in the law of God here, because that's, you know, again, you can't talk about sin if you, don't, if you don't talk about law. But he goes on, he says, The law of God and the conscience of man will convict the sinner of his sins, plural, specifically. But it is the work of the Spirit through the witness of believers to expose the unbelief of the lost world. After all, it is unbelief that condemns the lost sinner, not the committing of individual sins. Wearsby closes out. He says a person could clean up his life and quit his or her bad habits and still be lost and go to hell, end quote. And he's absolutely right. By the way, he cites John 3.18 there. And, uh, and I love this passage, because here he says, He who believes in him, and there's faith in Christ, he who believes in him is not judged. But notice, he who does not believe has been judged already. And why? Because, and here's the cause, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, and so uh, his being condemned here has, is, is, is put squarely upon him because... He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But uh, Wearsby's right on that. Now, going on in the notes here, the Spirit always performs His work perfectly in the hearts of the lost. But because people have volition and their hearts are corrupt, the vast majority of people suppress His message. They suppress His message. And by the way, you see this here in John 3.19. Uh where Jesus is saying here, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now the light there, the word light is capitalized because it's a, it's a synonym, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a term that's used with regard to Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. He is the perfect witness. He is the light. And it says here that the light has come into the world. And men, what? Loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You see, at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And that's really what it gets down to, is it really gets down to a heart issue. And by the way, the word loved here uh, isn't the word philos, uh, which is commonly translated as a, as a friendship kind of love. This is 
agapao, love. It's verb. It's the verb form. The noun we see as agape. You commonly hear that. And I remember when I was a boy growing up, and I didn't know better. Of course, you hear a lot of things, and you, you accept it because, you know, the pastor tells you, and so you, you go with it. Uh, but I was taught that agape love is only the love of God, that, that it refers to the highest love, and it's God's love and only God's love. And I said, okay, well, if you say, I'm fine with that. And then later on, when I began to study Greek, I realized that that doesn't bear out. And here you have the verb form of agapao. And it talks about men. Now, these men are not positive to the Lord. These men are negative to God. And men love the darkness. They agapao. But what I came to understand when I came to understand agapao as commitment love. You see, in the perfect sense, when you're living as a Christian and you're, in obe you're, you're, you're obedient to the word believer and you are uh, living according to God's values, then yes... Uh, uh, agapao, commitment love, is the love that you want because you have a base of values that are rooted in the character of God and the Word of God. And therefore, that form of commitment love is the best form of love. It is the highest form of love, and it's consistent with the walk of faith. But here, we have people that are negative to God. And, what are, what, and, and we might substitute the word loyal or committed. What are they committed to? They're committed to the darkness. They are committed to the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You see? And so when you understand agapao in that sense, it brings clarity. It, it helps us to understand how the word uh, should be understood. But the point is, is that the vast majority of people will suppress his message. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And then verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now Christ is the gate and Christ is the way. But you, you don't really know how to quantify this. You don't really know how to put this into, uh, into percentages. And I think that this fluctuates. I think we have higher and lower numbers uh, as history goes on, because I think you have generations that display positive volition, and then you have generations that by and large display negative volition. But nonetheless, the majority of those who hear, who, who, who saw Christ, who witnessed him, did not respond favorably to him. Again, I think of in John 12, 37, where it says, though he performed so many signs among them, yet they were not believing. And so here you have the perfect revelation of God. You have God himself in the flesh. Everything that Jesus said and did could not have been more perfectly said or more perfectly done than when he said it or when he did it, to whom he said it, in the context in which he said it. You have perfection on display. You have righteousness and truth and love and mercy and grace and kindness and gentleness and humility on perfect display. And yet the majority of those who heard and saw him rejected him. They wanted the free hand out of the meal. They wanted themselves or a loved one to be healed. And Jesus accommodated many of these people. He fed the multitudes. Um, but the majority of those who saw him and heard him, even at the time of his uh, crucifixion, when he was undergoing trial, the majority of those, including the leadership down to the people, were crying out, crucify, crucify him. And, uh, and so, you know, it just, it goes to show the hearts of these people. Uh, 
And so you have these examples here in the Bible where you have people, there's no issue with the truth. The issue is with the heart. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus here says to the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, it is these that testify about me. And he says in verse 20, and you are what? Unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You are unwilling. You see, the issue here is that they had the scriptures. He said, you think you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, but it's these, these scriptures that point to me. And he says, and you, this recalcitrant, hard-hearted group of people who were suppressing the truth, Jesus said, and you are unwilling. Because again, at the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. And here we have negative volition. They were not willing to come to him so that you may have life. Romans 1.18 is one of the clearest passages uh, where Paul is writing here about unbelief and its consequences. And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, notice, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, there's nothing wrong with the truth. God has revealed himself through the creation. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 makes that very clear, that the heavens are telling of thy glory, and day to day pours forth speech. And so God is very clearly revealed through the creation. And there's not a problem with looking at the creation and realizing, hey, this didn't just happen by itself. And hey, there's order to the universe. I was talking to a lady the other day at work. We were having a fascinating conversation about bees. And uh, bees are needed to uh, pollinate uh, trees and uh, flowers and all sorts of plants. Well, there's this uh, somewhere around the world. I I don't know if it was a region of Japan. Well, they had used some insecticide. They'd killed all the bees. And then they were having, and then all of a sudden the whole, it affected the whole economy because all of a sudden the plants weren't pollinating, they weren't producing, and then they had to come back and retry to reintroduce bees. But we were talking about how sensitive the system is. And you tinker with one thing, you remove the element of bees, and all of a sudden you have no way to pollinate plants. And that has a ripple effect, and it just begins to affect a lot of people. It's a very delicate balance a very delicate balance. And it's just, and, and anyway, we're talking about just how important all the elements are for, uh, for the world to function the way that it does. But my point in bringing this up is just that when you look at nature, uh, the odds of that happening by chance are just, it's just staggering. And so, you know, when I look at nature, of course, as a, as a theist, it's very easy for me to look and say, oh, well, that's, that's the result of designer. You know, a designer designed this because there's very clearly structure and order to this. But what we go back to here is that God has revealed himself through the creation, but the problem is that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Notice verse 19, because that which is known, not guessed at, not hinted, that which is known about God is evident, Paul says, within them. So he uses the word known. So there's clarity here. There's not ambiguity. And it is evident. It is very clear okay, is evident within them. Uh, And some theologians refer to this passage uh, as revealing what is called the sensus divinitatis, 
that is the sense of the divine. Sensus divinitatis is just a Latin phrase. It means a sense of the divine. And it means that everybody within themselves, when, when, it's, when, they're, when, when their heart hasn't become hardened, hardened yet due to recalcitrance and sin and negative volition, uh, that they have within themselves an awareness that God exists. That God exists. For God has made it evident within them. And notice, for God made it evident to them. Now, if God makes something clear, it's clear. Okay, and people can say, "Oh, I don't believe in God." Okay, uh, well, you can say that, but I know what's going on in your heart, and I know that you're suppressing the truth. And I know if you find yourself in a life and death situation, if you found yourself suddenly in a foxhole somewhere under enemy and friendly fire, you'd be crying out to God in a second. You know what do they say? There are no foxhole atheists, uh, and because you know it's interesting how quickly God comes out when all of a sudden they're in a jam. Uh, But again, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they, and they refers to those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, so that they who display negative volition, so that they who resist the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, so that they are without excuse before God. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So see, now comes in the darkness of the soul. And this is by, this is intentional. This is by volition. This is not accidental. Uh, You know, these people are becoming foolish, but the fools are fools by choice and never by chance. Uh, And that's what verse 22 is. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools. They became fools. You see, this is volition on display here. And, uh, And so what happens here is the fool is always a fool by choice and never by chance. And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, they worship the, cre- the creation rather than the creator because they're left with this God-hold vacuum in their heart and it has to be filled by something. So in comes the creation and they want to worship something. And then they look in the mirror and they say, oh, aren't you handsome? I'll worship you. You know, I'll worship the dollar or whatever it happens to be, uh, whatever it seems to fill. But it never satisfies. It can't. It's impossible. Impossible. But notice verse 24. In verse 24, we have a series of commands because it says that God gave them over. He gave them over. God is not a bully. He does not force himself upon anybody. Now, he reveals himself, and the Spirit is working to convince the heart of all unbelievers concerning Christ. Now, if they go negative to God, then God is, if they reject what light God has given them, then they're not under any obligation, excuse me, God is not under any further obligation to give them any further light because they've rejected what light he has given them. But three times it says that God gave them over. And notice verse 25, they, they, again, who suppress the truth, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They did it to themselves. Again, verse 26, and God gave them over to degrading passions and so on. And then in verse 28, you have it again. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, again, volition on display, negative volition, God gave them over to what? A depraved mind, a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife. Gee, it sounds like America today, doesn't it? A lot of what we see going on in our country, the spiritual and moral decline, uh, another subject for another day. But the point is, is that people have volition. 
and their hearts tend towards corruption, and the vast majority of people suppress his message. And so getting back to the work of the Spirit here, only the Holy Spirit can reveal to the human heart the truth about Jesus, as well as the truth about their sin of unbelief. To suppress the Spirit's work about Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior is the greatest of sins possible, as well as the most fatal sin that forever condemns a person to hell. Robert Leitner, and here I'm quoting from his Handbook of Evangelical Theology. If you haven't bought that yet, I'm going to recommend it for you. It's a good book to have on your library. It's a little book, but it's packed. It's good. Leitner's good. He says, quote, Apart from God the Father, there would have been no plan of salvation. Without God the Son, there would have been no provision of salvation. And apart from the work of God the Spirit, there would be no application of this great salvation to man's needs. It is the third member of the Godhead who, who procures salvation for all who believe, end quote. But right now, the Spirit is working in the hearts of unbelievers to convict them of the sin of unbelief. And so he's very much at work in the hearts of unbelievers. And I know this, because when I go and I talk to somebody and I share with them the gospel, I know before I ever get there, I know that God the Holy Spirit has already been working in their hearts for some time. Now, maybe they're on a long-term trajectory of rejecting the truth. Maybe they've already gotten to the point to where God has already handed them over. Maybe he's already given them over. I don't know where they are. Maybe they're going to rebound at some point. Maybe they're going to come out of that uh, out of that rabbit hole, and uh, they're going to finally see some sunlight one day, and all of a sudden that scripture about 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and 4 is going to pop, and they're going to turn to faith in Christ. I don't know. I don't know, and I just have a role to play. You see, when it comes to the salvation of the lost, I have a role to play. God the Holy Spirit is the primary actor. Let me be very clear. God, the Holy Spirit, is the primary actor. It is God himself who is working in the hearts of these people. And God is, again, he's not a bully, but he is making himself known, and he is making Christ known, and he is working in the hearts of these people. Not only that, but when you look at passages like Hebrews 1.14, it tells us that angels are involved. Uh, because angels are involved concerning those who will inherit salvation. Well, that's interesting, too, because God the Holy Spirit's at work. Angels are at work in the background. Maybe they're setting up these scenarios. Maybe they're, you know, you know uh, keeping this person slowed down in a traffic jam or something. But maybe they're involved in the details of uh, orchestrating their life because God has a plan somewhere down the road for that person who needs to know Christ to meet Mr. or Mrs. Evangelist, who's going to share Christ, and their paths are going to cross. And uh, God is involved in this. Angels are involved in this. So there's a whole lot of, of work going on in the background before we ever show up. And, uh, and so when we show up, we have a role to play, and that is to present the gospel as clearly and concisely as we can. And... Um, and I like getting it down to concise. I, I do. I love getting it down to a very concise presentation. So let's move on. Let's talk about the work of the Spirit concerning the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus. Now, God alone sets the standard for righteousness, not people. You see, people set up arbitrary standards of righteousness. And it's funny, uh, years ago, I had a lady uh, that I worked with, and uh, she's moved on, she's found greener pastures, but uh, she was an atheist. And uh, she didn't, she would mock Christianity, and I loved her anyway. I still, we had uh, as cordial conversations as I could keep it anyway. She wasn't always very cordial. 
Uh, she was kind of rude a lot of times, actually. But nonetheless, uh, when we were in conversation, she would say, you know, you really should do this. You know, or, I, you know, I've been listening to it, and I, I think you really ought to do that. And, and, I would, and I would say, you know, there you go again with your shoulds and oughts, because where do you get that from? Well, it just seems like, okay, well, you, we, excuse me, uh, when you talk about shoulds and oughts, you're setting forth value statements. You're setting forth something that implies a morality, uh, a standard that says this is better than that. And you're saying that I should do this or I ought to do that. Excuse me, where do you get your shoulds and oughts? Uh, because you don't believe in God. And so are you just plucking these out of thin air? Is this, is this just your own conjured up set of values? Uh, because if that's all you're giving me, really all you're giving me is a psychology report about what you think is right and what you think is wrong. But it, it doesn't really amount to anything other than what you think it means. Because the reality is, is that if there is no God, if there is no God, then there is no absolute moral lawgiver. And if there is no absolute moral lawgiver, then there are no absolute moral laws. And if there are no absolute moral laws where things are always right and always wrong tied to an absolute... If there are no absolute uh, moral laws, then what we're left with is what is. We're just simply left with what is, and we must say that what is is right. And at that moment, really, the conversation's over, uh, because there's really no ground to declare anything right or wrong. And I've mentioned this before, that if there is no God, and we live in a purely materialistic universe, and the universe came into a being as a result of a Big Bang, which the atheists would tell us happened 13.8 billion years ago, is the last number I've heard. It keeps expanding, by the way. You know, it went from 2 billion to 4 billion to 6.8 to 10 to 12. Now we're up to 13.8 billion. Uh, but really, if there is no God, then what you're left with is a purely materialistic universe where everything that is right now becomes merely the product of matter, motion, time, and chance. Uh, and matter has to be set into motion for chemistry to work. But if there is no God, then what we're left with is simply matter, motion, time, and chance. And you need lots of time, you need deep time, but you need pure chance. But that reduces mankind to just simply biological beings. Uh, the accidental collection of molecules, evolving bags of protoplasm that come from the goo to the zoo to you. And uh, we just percolate up from the goo, and here we are uh, by chance. There's no reason for us to e exist. We come from nothing significant, we go to nothing significant, uh, and that means that we are nothing significant. If there is no God, then really man is, is a zero. We're just a, we're just a cosmic joke in an accidental universe because there's no reason for us to exist. And so once you get into talking about shoulds and oughts and rights and wrongs, you know, said the evolving bag of protoplasm, uh, who's here by accident, by the way. Uh, you know, and, and when you come from that atheistic worldview, uh, then, then that's, that's really at the very heart of it. Now, people don't like to talk about that. And really, it gives no purpose to man. And that's why existentialism as a philosophy was so big in the 60s and 70s, because people were trying to find some reason for living. And, uh, and so we still deal with that today. But the, as a, as coming from a biblical worldview, we understand that God alone, sets the standard for righteousness, not people. He declares what is right, and he declares what is wrong. And to find righteousness, and this is actually taken from my doctoral dissertation, because I did my, my doctoral dissertation on, on the attribute of God's righteousness. Uh, of all the attributes, I had to deal with all of them, but I focused on that one in particular. Uh, divine righteousness may be defined as the intrinsic, immutable, moral perfection of God 
from which he commands all things in heaven and earth and declares as just that which conforms to his righteousness and as sinful that which he deviates and that which deviates. Now, Borchert here, um, from the New American Commentary, Borchert is correct when he states humanity is not in control either of the future or of the setting the standards for life. That is the work of God, end quote. And he's absolutely correct. And Merrill C. Tenney states, and here I'm citing from the Expositor's Bible Commentary on John and Acts, Merrill C. Tenney states, quote, apart from a standard of righteousness, there can be no sin. And there must be an awareness of the holiness of God before a person will realize his own deficiency, end quote. But he's absolutely right. Apart from a standard of righteousness, there can be no sin. If there is no standard of righteousness, then you have no law. And if you have no law, you have no violation of the law. You see? And though Jesus was rejected and treated as a criminal, God the Father declared him righteous and welcomed him to heaven, his natural home. You see, God the Father declared Jesus as righteous. In fact, in Acts 3.14, Jesus is called the Holy and Righteous One. He's called the Holy and Righteous One. And throughout his life, per 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. And 1 John 3.5 says that in him there is no sin. Now the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus at the time that it occurred was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. And interestingly enough, Jesus said that those who rejoiced, that those who rejected and crucified him would rejoice that they would actually rejoice. But as Borchert notes correctly, quote, their rejoicing at being finished with Jesus turned out to be the rejoicing of the damned, end quote. And he's correct. Their rejoicing at being finished with Jesus turned out to be the rejoicing of the damned. Now, William Hendrickson, who is another really good Bible teacher, he offers the following insights. He says, quote, The world represented by the Jews was about to crucify Jesus. It was going to say that he ought to die, per John 19.7. Hence, in the name of righteousness, it was going to put him to death. Because notice again there that, that the use of the term ought there. I'm, I'm highlighting that here just for a moment. But going back to his quote here, it was, it was going to say that he ought to die. Hence, in the name of righteousness, it was going to put him to death. It proclaimed aloud that he was anything but righteous. Let me pause for just a moment. What's the standard? They were operating on an artificial human construct, not a divine standard. So going back to his notes here, he says, It proclaimed aloud that he was anything but righteous. It treated him as an evildoer. But the exact opposite was the truth. Though rejected by the world, he was welcomed by the Father, welcomed home via the cross, the cross which led to the crown. By means of the resurrection, the Father would place the stamp of his approval upon his life and work. He, the very one whom the world had branded as unrighteous, would by means of his victorious going to the Father be marked as the righteous one. Thus the world would be convicted with respect to righteousness, end quote. You see, the fact that the Spirit is convicting the world concerning righteousness, Jesus said, because I go to the Father. You see, that means that the Father accepted him. He is the righteous one. 
He's the only one who on his own merit, because he never sinned, because he was perfectly righteous in all that he said and all that he did, could, could be welcome into heaven via his home from where he originated as God the Son. And so he is the standard of righteousness. So when we preach Christ and we talk about him being the very standard of righteousness, uh, we're setting forth a biblical truth uh, that is also in line with what the Spirit works to seek to convince the hearts of unbelievers about. Now, going back to the notes here, Christians do not need to struggle to convince people about the perfect righteousness of Christ, nor of the sinner's failed righteousness before a holy God. They need only to communicate the biblical truth about Christ and a fallen humanity and leave the Spirit to do what only He can do, to convince them of the truth about Christ as the only Savior of mankind. If unbelievers suppress the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, then no amount of reasoning or argumentation on the part of Christians will advance the gospel even one inch. Let me say that again. If unbelievers suppress the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, then no amount of reasoning or argumentation on the part of Christians will advance the gospel even one inch. Lewis Berry Chafer uh, wrote a little book called True Evangelism, and if you've, if you've not picked that up, it's a little book, but I do recommend it. It's a very, very good book. But uh, Dr. Chafer used to say that before I bring God to somebody, I bring that somebody to God. He was always prone to pray for people. Then, when he saw signs of interest, when he saw positive volition where they were having interest in knowing God, then God will God is the divine orchestrator of evangelism. He brings people together. Just like in Acts 8, when Philip uh, was brought out to meet the Ethiopian eunuch, who, who was sending off positive signals, who wanted to know God. God orchestrates evangelistic moments. We don't have to force it. It's not a matter of ram cramming and jamming the information down people's throat, which we should never do. That's, that's not part of the Christian life. Uh, Paul's you know, comment in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. You see, they have to come to their senses and to escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So it does require them to come to their senses. Uh, but how we handle ourselves, we need always to be uh, polite in our dealings with people. Always cordial. Uh, because you're not going to argue anybody into, the, into, the, into heaven. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. But when we understand the work of the Spirit, the work of angels, the work of others, and what's going on in the heart, it really simplifies it for us. And I'm glad to talk about Jesus. And some people don't like to hear about it. And, uh, and, but I'll, I'll talk about him, you know, for those who are willing. So let's talk about the judgment of the ruler of this world. Let's see if we can get it in here in a few minutes. Now, a third area where the Spirit is working in the hearts of unbelievers concerns judgment, John 16, 11 tells us, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Satan has been judged and found guilty before God. Christ is the holy and righteous one, but Satan has been judged and found guilty before God because God sets the standard. This means that Satan and his world system is condemned. And being the ruler of this world, Satan naturally rules in the hearts of all unbelievers. Satan, uh, three times, remember that Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. 
in John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11. He's called the ruler of this world. Other passages of Scripture call Satan the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Satan rules as a tyrant who has weakened the nations, per uh, Isaiah 14, 12, and currently is said to deceive the whole world. Now that speaks to the scope of his influence. And Satan continues to attack God's people today. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us to be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the devil's still on the hunt. He practices deception, per 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, and has well-developed strategies of warfare, uh, warfare uh, per Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. And Galatians 1, 4 says that we are living in an evil age. Uh, this present evil age is what uh, it's described as. And uh, in Acts 26, uh, 26, 18, he says, uh, Jesus says to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So the world is under the dominion of Satan, whose sphere of influence is called the domain of darkness in Colossians 1, 13. You see, that is who is currently ruling this world. Now, Satan is given a grant, a, a, a modicum of permission to, to do his work, and he operates on lies and deception. And he promotes uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the threefold front that we battle on. Uh, but this is his world system. But Satan has been judged, and his punishment is pending execution. You see, he was judged at the cross. Furthermore, those who side with Satan in this life will be judged with him in eternity. And that's really kind of at the heart of the issue there, is those who reject Christ... Uh, ultimately side with Satan in this life and will be judged with him in eternity. According to Charles Ryrie, he says, quote, At the cross, Christ, Christ triumphed over Satan, serving notice on unbelievers that their judgment, uh, of their judgment to come, end quote. Earl Rodmacher notes, quote, Satan was judged at the cross and the Holy Spirit would convince people of the judgment to come. Satan has been judged so, so that all who side with him will be judged with him. There is no room for neutrality. A person is either a child of God or a child of the devil, end quote. And Merrill Tenney states, quote, to convince an unbeliever of sin, righteousness, and judgment is beyond human ability. It may be possible to fix upon him the guilt of some specific sin if there is sufficient evidence to bring him before a jury, but to make him acknowledge the deeper fact that he is a sinner, evil at heart, and deserving of punishment because he has not believed in Christ is quite another matter. Tinney goes on, he says, to bring a man to some standard of ethics is not too difficult, for almost every person has ideals that coincide with the moral law at some point. To create in him the humiliating consciousness that his self-righteousness is as filthy rags in comparison with the spotless linen of the righteousness of God cannot be affected by ordinary persuasion. Many believe in a general law of retribution, but it is almost impossible to convince them that they, are, that they already stand condemned. Tenney closes out, he says, Only the power of the Holy Spirit working from within can bring about that profound conviction which leads to repentance. The Spirit anticipates and makes effective the ministry of the disciples in carrying the message to unbelievers, end quote. 
But he's absolutely right. It's only the Holy Spirit working from within can bring about that profound conviction which leads to repentance. And repentance there is a change of mind that one cannot save himself or herself and cast themselves completely upon Christ because man needs only Christ to be saved. Let me close out with this last paragraph here. I'll go over by a few minutes. Satan has been judged and will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Those who reject Christ as Savior naturally default to an alliance with Satan, and these will spend eternity in the lake of fire with him. Uh, in Matthew 5, 25, 41, Jesus said, Then he will also say to those on his left, he's talking about at the end of the tribulation, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. He says to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, excuse me, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, to reject the convincing work of the Holy Spirit concerning the sin of unbelief, to reject the work of the Holy Spirit concerning the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and to, and to reject the convincing work of the Holy Spirit concerning the, the ruler of this world who has been judged, is for this person to reject that work by the Spirit is ultimately to place themselves in the lake of fire. If they align themselves with Satan, then they will spend eternity with him. Now, the reality is, is that the lake of fire is avoidable. If the lost simply trust in Christ as their Savior, they will have eternal life and spend eternity with God in heaven. However, if they reject Christ as Savior, then they will spend eternity in hell. And John 20, 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so, you see, all of this is avoidable. If one simply turns to faith in Christ... But the heart has to be positive. The person has to want to know God and has to respond positively to the work of the Spirit in his heart concerning unbelief, concerning the righteousness of Christ, and concerning the fact that the ruler of this world has been judged. All right, so we got through that, and I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing the notes here. And... Uh, <clears throat> open this up. Do we have any questions over tonight's study? Any questions or comments? Will? Buddy, take it away. Buddy, what do you got? Hey, uh, good evening, Dr. Kirk. How are you this evening? I'm well, buddy. My voice held out. I'm surprised. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a question. I just want to make a comment. Just like I think Paul, the guy who was here last week, talking about how really good you are as a teacher, man. I will never, ever be the same again after I read John 16 verses 9, 10, and 11. Hmm. What you have done tonight is profound. The hmm. way you took three verses and you just expounded and expounded and expounded on those scriptures on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All the Holy Spirit is working on people like unbelievers before we they even know what I guess God has installed for them as far as salvation. He's already working with them as far as sin, as far as the righteousness of Jesus, as far as you know judgment and how Satan has been judged. So I just want to just make a comment that the class tonight, just like every other class, is is, is wonderful. It's been phenomenal, and um, I just love your teaching. I love the way you, you brought these scriptures to life and all the expounding that you did on them tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I just want to make a comment. That was awesome. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate that. I'm glad it communicated. I'm glad the material uh, was written. Oh, and, 
and, and you know, it's it's funny because on my end, I I struggle. I do. And even the video I did today, I was I was putting it up. It won't go live for a couple of days because I scheduled it out. But I wrestle sometimes. I really struggle with sometimes. How do you communicate this? How do you get this idea across? How do you how do you set it forth in clarity? And it's hard for me not to get kind of fired up about some of the stuff too, because it's just my nature. I get into the Word of God and it gets me fired up. But uh, next but, week you're really gonna get fired up because I am looking for the new generation. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I interesting. Been waiting for this. Yeah. Anyway, just want to make a comment. Thank you so much. Cool. I'm I appreciate. I'm glad it got through. I'm glad it communicated well. John T. Yes, sir. It just made me think when you're talking about how important the Holy Spirit's work wasn't present before convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What was going on in the Old Testament or before that time? Because it's such a big work that, you know, how were people brought to faith, do you think? Well, I think that, uh, and I'm writing on this too. That's an interesting thing, and it's a it's it's a controversial subject. I, I think that people have always been saved by grace through faith. I think the content of what is believed has changed over time. When one goes back to the Garden of Eden, for example, and you think about uh, Adam and Eve, uh, they were told that uh, from Eve you have what is called the Proto Evangelium, right? The, the the first presentation of the gospel that from Eve would come a descendant uh, who would crush the head of the serpent. And I think that when Adam and Eve, I think when they saw the animal get killed, uh, that God killed, and that he took the skins, and remember, they were operating on Operation Fig Leaf. And when, when, uh, when, they, uh, when they accepted the provision of God, which pictures death and the shedding of blood, and they clothed themselves in the provision of God, be it the animal skins, I think that was their moment of regeneration. I think that was the moment where they responded positively to the promise of God that through her would come a descendant that would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, you get to... Uh, um, um, Genesis chapter 12, or Genesis 15, excuse me, verses 1 through 6, where uh, the promise was given that a son would come through Abram, uh, who would be his heir. And Abraham believed the promise of God. He believed in the Lord. He trusted him in what he said. And of course, we know that through his descendant would come the heir, who is the Messiah, and, uh, and how much did Abraham fully understand that? We don't know. We know back in Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, that God told him that he would be a, a blessing, that the whole world would be blessed through him. So I think that Abraham believed in the promise of God, and the text tells us that it was credited to him as righteousness. I think that when one was under the Mosaic law system, I think when one saw the animal sacrifices and understood enough to know that that was a picture that pointed forward, because they understood, uh, well, through the, through the prophets, they came to understand the idea, the idea of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And, uh, and there was enough language in there that I think that a person could trust in the promise of God and the provision of God as it was revealed under those conditions. Now, ultimately, when we get to the New Testament, uh, it ultimately becomes focused upon Christ himself. He becomes the object of faith, and most notably, uh, the gospel message of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. But what was the Holy Spirit doing? Um, you know, 
I don't, I don't know. The scripture is really silent on a lot of that. We don't really have a lot of information. We know that he was speaking through prophets, and we know that even Gentiles came. Uh, if you take, for example, uh, Ray, uh, excuse me, uh, Ruth, um, and, uh, and you, know, the, you think of the little book of Ruth, well, Ruth made a profession of faith. She said, look, your God will be my God. <laughs> and you know, she, she trusts in the Lord. You, know, you have that as an expression of faith. And I think that that was the moment of conversion for her. So you have these encounters where you have these people who were trusting, and, and, and one would assume, and again, it's, it's all I'm doing here is just assuming that the Holy Spirit was working in their life in some way. Uh, but what we have fleshed out in, in the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John is, is so precise, and it is specifically tied, and this is what makes it unique, it is so specifically tied to the future ministry of the Spirit, as Jesus said, it would come when he comes, future tense. So clearly, I think that's tied to Acts 2 and following. Uh, and I think that's where we have such a unique time in history with regard to evangelism and sharing the gospel. Um, do you have any insight, anything you'd like to share? Because I know you're a pretty healthy student of the Word yourself. Do you have any thoughts on the matter? No, that, that just hit me tonight. It just seems like it was a lot less focused in the Old Testament than it is now. We seem to know more precisely what you know what the issue is and what the what the gospel is where when when we look back at the old testament there's a lot of debate about well what exactly did they have to believe what did they have you know and now we know that he were the holy spirit's convicting of sin and the specific sin that that is and that's it's just different it seemed more focused so i was just i was looking for your thoughts i didn't i couldn't think of anything off the top of my head it just made me wonder because there's so much provision now right you know for it that you know that what was the provision then because people still were saved like you said mm -hmm. and hey, what you said makes as much sense as anything i hadn't i guess i hadn't thought about it before not to that degree anyway well i've actually written on that it's part of our study in soteriology we're going to hit that that is that is a point of discussion and uh because it, it's controversial and uh and you know what what must one know to be saved and uh and and one thing i think that is taught when one studies the Bible, uh, and that is that revelation is progressive. You know, what God revealed to Adam and Eve was expanded on when God spoke to, to, to Noah, and what he revealed to Noah was written down, and then what he revealed to Abraham, and what he revealed to, uh, uh, to, um, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to the patriarchs. And to the prophets and revelation, the Bible was written. We, we, we remember that the Bible was written roughly over a period of 1,500 years uh, by about 40 human authors, all of them Jewish. And, uh, and so they wrote uh, primarily from Hebrew uh, and Greek. Uh, Daniel chapters 2 through 7 and a few other sections were written in Aramaic uh, because it was written primarily to a Gentile audience. Um, but the, the Bible was progressive. It was written over time. And so we have a, a, a revealing, as it were, over time as these things are unpacked for us. And so, you know, what was revealed at one point is, uh, is expanded as time goes on. And eventually you get forward to where when Christ shows up, uh, you know, all John the Baptist has to do is say, behold, the Lamb of God. Well, when you talk about the Lamb of God, you're talking about a whole theology that's tied to the Levitical worship system 
and, uh, and the offerings that had gone on for roughly 1,400 years and that was so ingrained into the very culture and the fabric of that which it meant to be Jewish and operating in a Jewish community, especially in the land in Jerusalem with a functioning temple. And so, you know, I mean, there was so much richness of symbolism there that uh, that you know that all of a sudden you turn around to Christ and all of a sudden you, you know what the symbol was now you have the reality and so you have a revelation that is just much clearer than it was in the past so i think it's i think that's something we'll talk about in the days ahead as well so anyway good question any other questions or comments anybody have anything no nope. Okay, well, let's uh, wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that which you have revealed. And uh, we thank you for your word, which gives us insight into realities that we could never know, except that you have spoken. And what you have spoken has been inscripturated. It has been written down for our benefit. And we can come to the Bible as truth, objective truth from you to us, and we can look at it, we can study it, and it was written down for our benefit to help us to know you and the things that you have done in time and space and history and the things that you are doing and will doing because you are ultimately the sovereign Lord of the universe and you control history and history's going somewhere because Christ is coming back. And we have a bright and a hopeful future because we know that our relationship with you makes it so. And you have blessed us in so many ways. And we are thankful that we can call you Father, and that is for one reason and one reason only, and that is because we have believed upon Christ as our Savior. And we know that nearly 2,000 years ago, he came into this world, God the Son came into this world and took upon himself humanity, and he lived the righteous life that we cannot. And he went to the cross and he died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we can never earn. And when we come to Christ with the empty hands of faith, believing that he died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day and seen by many, that when we trust in Christ and Christ alone, at that moment we have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins and the gift of righteousness and many, many other blessings. And Father, we are so thankful for that which you have blessed us with. And Father, we pray as we go forth this evening that the things that we've studied that we will be challenged by that this might become more and more clarified in our thinking in the days and weeks ahead. Um, Father, we just pray that in all the things that we say and do, that we will glorify and honor you and be a light to others. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.